I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. If you're shopping around for important information and perspective, look no further. On this episode, we're taking a wholesale look at retail. The landscape, I think, by most conventional wisdom is changing dramatically on a lot of different levels. That's Adam Ifshin, the founder and CEO of DLC Management, one of the premier owner-operators of retail real estate in America. Adam joins us from Armonk, New York. We want to be partners and we want to work together to try to combat these unprecedented times together in win-win scenarios. That's Chris Ressa, DLC's COO, who oversees the company's multi-billion dollar portfolio. Chris joins us from New Jersey. And to help us put things in perspective, we're also joined by one of CBRE's brightest thought leaders in the retail space. Retailers cannot afford to deliver to our doorsteps. So what does that mean? It means we're going to have to go back to the store. That's Melina Cordero in Washington, D.C., where she leads CBRE's Retail Capital Markets Group for the Americas. We're talking about the brick and mortar where we do our buying and selling, the state and future of retail. That's right now on The Weekly Day. Welcome to The Weekly Take, and this week we're talking retail. It is our second retail episode, but so much has changed since our last episode in March. And to help us today, we are joined by three friends of mine, starting with Adam Ifshin, the CEO of DLC Management. Hey, Spencer. Chris Tressa, the COO of DLC. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. And of course, my great friend and colleague, Melina Cordero, America's head of retail capital markets. Melina, welcome. Great to be back. Well, Melina, let's start with you. Let's get the big picture. What's going on with retail and what's changed since we last talked on this show in March? Ah, so much and so little, depending on what you look at, right? If you if you look from a capital market standpoint, it seems like not a ton has changed. We've been very much on pause in terms of transactions, especially large transactions. But if you look under the surface at what's been going on with consumers and retailers, there has been so much movement. And I, I would point out with consumers... Uh, specifically, we saw this big decline, and this is since you and I last spoke, this big decline in sales over March and April, and then this incredible bounce back where we are today, and we have been since uh, July, above where we were last year and above where we were pre-pandemic. Well, that's a remarkable turnabout, Melina. Now let's take a quick step back. Let's start with you, Adam. Tell us about DLC and what you do. Sure. Um, so DLC is a team of about 120 dedicated teammates who are solely focused on operating, redeveloping, leasing, managing, building physical presence retail for our retailer clients. We are one of the top 15 privately held owners of open air value oriented retail shopping centers in the entire United States. And our focus is largely on value add, acquisitions and operations, and ground up development for single tenant net lease retail space as well. The portfolio today on the ownership side is, uh, is a little bit right around 17 and a half million square feet, 85 assets in which we are an owner and an operator. The own portfolio has an AUM between, you know, pre-COVID AUM of call it between $2.6 and $2.8 billion. And Chris, uh, Chris is in addition to being uh, one of your colleagues, the COO, also runs his own podcast called Retail Retold, where he was kind enough to have Melina and I on a couple of weeks ago. So Chris, tell the audience who you are and what you do. 
I oversee what we call our value creation department, uh, and that consists of our leasing, construction, property management, and marketing teams. So I focus on everything that's at the property level. I work hand-in-hand with my other colleagues and other partner, Jonathan Wigzer, who's our chief investment officer and focuses on the debt and equity markets, uh, acquisitions, dispositions. Um, uh, I'm at the table at those, but my day-to-day is really running the assets and working with the teams to do that. So Adam, how's it going in retail right now? So the answer is the landscape, I think, by most conventional wisdom is changing dramatically on a lot of different levels. Um, I think the biggest one is historically, right, institutional investors had large holdings across three or four different types of retail. Malls, obviously, uh, high street retail, outlet and lifestyle, and then open air and what we do in open air value. And I think one of the things that everyone's looking at is, you know, I've been posed this question, you've both all been posed this question of, is retail still an institutional asset class, right? And the reality is, is that our view is that there are going to be very stark winners and losers, short, medium, and long-term within retail. We are avowed believers that open-air value retail is an institutional investment class. It's here to stay, and it's actually going to come out of this cycle stronger than it was going in. It is without question the ultimate cost-effective tip of the last-mile spear to get goods to middle-class Americans. And I think that's very powerful, right? Everything else that's been going on in retail has been amplified and accelerated dramatically by the onset and the the lengthy extension of the pandemic. And that amplification and that acceleration is hastening the demise of essentially retail where the common area is roofed and temperature controlled. And on the mall side, perhaps to a level that is not you know, recoverable from. So that's sort of the way we look at that as sort of the the grander landscape, if you will. So from your point of view, Adam, to summarize it, institutions should still be going to the space, particularly for open air. And if I were to just go one step further for necessity retail, but I think you want even further than that, that open air does not just include necessity retail, it includes restaurants and includes gyms. Is that still an institutional asset class? We clearly believe that it is, and we believe that we have the data to support it. We have seen all sorts of retailers who I would not say are quote unquote essential start to produce numbers that are year over year higher in July and August than they were in July and August of 2019. We have multiple furniture stores, multiple off-price apparel players who posted bigger numbers in July and August 2020 than they did in July and August of 2019. The reality is it's not essential, right? It's not grocery. Um, And we're seeing a real recovery across areas that I I wouldn't consider purely essential, Spencer. Okay. Well, Chris, let's go down to the property level now for a moment. First of all, uh, from just a nitty gritty property management standpoint, some of the challenges you faced recently, and then let's turn to leasing. How's that going? So from a property management perspective, we had a three-pillar strategy that was called the eights. We called them the eights internally, which was mitigate, accommodate, and communicate. 
And that was our strategy. We needed to mitigate and so anything we could to from sanitizing to cleanliness and everything we could at a facilities level, uh, accommodate things like, you know, we had a scenario where we put up a tent for a tenant in a parking lot or, you know, outdoor seating where we could, you know, extra storage space for a grocer who was inundated. And then I think the the most important one and one of the great things to come out of this crisis is communicate. I don't think we've ever communicated more with our clients than over the last seven months. And so that's how we approached uh, the property management. Uh, We're still using that today. I think the eights are going to be a strategy for us that has long tail outside of just the pandemic because it seemed to be very effective. Well, Chris, let me let me push you a little bit if I can here for a moment because yeah, you know I certainly saw a tremendous amount of uh, very positive landlord tenant relationships in March and April and May, but I did get a sense that there was a shift of sorts, maybe a little bit less friendly, a little bit more adversarial in the last couple of months. Are, are you seeing any of that? So when I say accommodate, uh, I don't mean give away rent. We want to be partners. And we want to create win-win outcomes for everybody. And so just giving away the rent, you know, would put most landlords out of business. So, you know, that's not what I mean by accommodate. I mean, work together to try to combat these unprecedented times together in win-win scenarios. I would tell you that majority of our tenant base, we were able to come to terms and make deals that everyone would have felt good about um, the deals we were making, you know, everyone gave a little and everyone got something. There are certain, you know, landlords and tenants that it clearly was adversarial and there was different views and there's legal cases going on right now about those that turned adversarial. I think, um, that's the nature of any crisis. Just real quick, Chris and his team have killed it here. Okay. They have gone above and beyond at every turn. They have killed it. There isn't a single month where we collected less than 80% of the rent. In the last two, we've broken 90. But make no mistake about it, um, our retailers have killed themselves. They have been extraordinary. They have been extraordinary members of their communities. They have fought like hell to get back open or to stay open in tough circumstances. Many of them had numerous workers who they called in at all hours of the day and night to keep their communities fed. Um, I I can't say enough about what our retailers have done. Chris and his team have done a phenomenal job at reaching reasonable accommodations with everybody. You know, most of what's out there left really are the tenants who just frankly may not survive, right? Molina, let's turn to you now for a moment. You supervise some of the uh, really great professionals in the entire industry uh, who sell retail. What are they saying? Well, what we're seeing from a capital markets perspective, and and I think from all perspectives in retail, is a continued divide between the haves and the have-nots. And I think Chris and Adam have referenced this as well. Um, You know, in terms of what is trading, even though we have seen transaction volumes down about 75% year over year in Q2, there's been a real pullback in in actual trades. But what has been trading uh, are those assets that, in, in my view, have been least affected. 
by COVID and, and some of the rent challenges that Adam and Chris referenced. So it's a lot of grocery anchored centered, you know, essential retail categories or single tenant uh, triple net uh, and a lot of times smaller deals. So very few deals over 15 to 20 million. So that's where the bulk of the activity uh, has taken place. While we've seen a real pause in the, in the rest of the capital markets and certainly for larger deals. Let's dig a little bit deeper into that. Uh, I want to talk pricing for just a moment. Uh, I did see the draft of CBRE's uh, 2020 first half cap rate survey, which should be out any day now. Uh, I was actually quite surprised to see uh, cap rates uh, move very little, quite candidly. But what are you seeing for cap rates in retail, Melina? Well, Spencer, we're seeing cap rates move very little. Right. <laughs> we saw the truth. So what's interesting about the cap rate survey this round is typically we look at several different product types within retail. Right. We look at high street. We look at grocery anchored and we look at community centers, power centers, and we'll look at them separately. But because of that pullback, because of that real decline in, in trades and transaction activity that we looked at and we said, you know what? Uh, this is not something that we can draw large wide scale conclusions from. So we focused on an area where we felt we could make those confident assessments about pricing, and that was stabilized grocery anchored strip centers. And as I mentioned before, those have been uh, minimally impacted by COVID. And so what we saw, and, and our teams on the ground have been trading these assets, very little price movement. And interestingly, although there's this big headline assumption that retail pricing is just going to fall and cap rates are going to rise uh, hugely, we actually think in some markets that grocery anchored segment, that super core sort of bulletproof <laughs> class that we talk about, may actually see some cap rate compression in the months to come. I think right now, right, it's almost like the pre-price discovery phase. And I can't tell you how long it is. It's got another six months to go for sure. It may have 12 months, it may have 18 months, it may have 24 months. But after that period, to the extent that the economy is still in a period of extremely accommodative rates and very low yields across a wide spectrum of investment opportunities, all of which yielding very, very low numbers, I think you will see cap rates be the tail wagging the dog in investment sales. Cap rates will be far less important than the durability of cash flow streams, the ability to maintain those cash flow streams, and perhaps even grow those cash flow streams. Cash flow is going to be king. I think it's interesting too. You know, we, we mentioned the triple net lease market, and that's why I think there was an overcorrection that is going to really help open air value retail because, you know, what's a more durable cash flow stream? A Walmart anchored center that's 70% of the income with other Fortune 500 companies and some small shop and maybe a little vacancy or a triple net lease with a uh, a franchisee that has three locations but is purely triple net. And that seems because it's low price in trading, but from a durable cash flow stream, I would think the credit worthiness of the former is much more durable, but you're seeing those trade too. So I think there was an overcorrection in some of the large scale you know, value retail that I think is going to be very positive for value retail. Let me dig into a, a phrase that um, Adam, you use and Chris, you expanded on, which is the durability of the cash flow stream. And, you know, I've been in this business for 25 years and the durability of cash flow is based upon the sanctity of the lease between the landlord and the tenant. And we all love fixed rent. We like percentage rent less. And then we, as we go further out, uh, we're even less fans of that. That said, 
are we now entering into a world where we have to go further out, not just to percentage rent, but to internet sales in the region, and dare I say it, landlords and tenants being one entity, much like we saw recently, where Brookfield and Simon bought JCPenney and Brooks Brothers. Do we see this as a moment of fundamental change, or will the world of landlord and tenant be fundamentally the same going forward? Chris, what do you think? Do I think that's going to be the norm and commonplace? I don't. I don't think at scale retailers want to be landlords and landlords want to be retailers. I think it gets too complicated and messy. And do I think we'll have some creative solutions to problems? Of course. I think this has created that in its will. Is it going to be a place where at scale landlords and retailers are this merging of incomes? I I think there's too many landlords and too many retailers that aren't set up for that. And I don't think it moves to that at scale. Adam, do you think leases are going to get shorter? I don't see right now a movement to shorter lease term. In our space thus far, you know, Chris and his team have pretty interesting pipeline and the strong tenants who are opportunistically out there and we've signed, you know, multiple deals with a number of national tenants since COVID started. Um, there's been no erosion in lease term. Uh, what they're most focused on is can I get two things? Can I get a good deal? Can I get the lowest possible rent? And can I get that piece of space that you always said wasn't for me because it was going to be worth more money and you had some fancier tenant for it? Um, but by and large, no, we have not seen, at least not yet, an erosion in lease term. And I don't actually expect to. I also think, Spencer, when you look at what's happened over the last decade is a lot of tenants have pushed back on landlords to you know, spend a significant amount of capital, whether that's in landlord work or tenant improvements. And landlords can't invest that amount of capital and have no lease term. It's just not going to happen. And there hasn't been an expectation for that today. And I don't see that changing. Are there digitally native brands that are coming into physical that are looking for landlords to incubate them on a short-term basis? Sure. You're not really seeing that at scale in in the open air uh, suburban world. You also have to think about, and you're, you're alluding to this, Chris, right? The changing tenant base that you're looking at and, and in open air. And, and the three of us have talked about this a lot, right? Something like healthcare and medical retail that's coming into the open air space. They're not signing short-term leases, right? They're going longer term and they're coming with great credit. So there, there's also this question of the changing merchandise mix and, and the impact that that has on lease terms. Yeah, I'm surprised, Melinda, you had to bring it up before Chris, since Chris and his team have over 10 Medtail deals in lease right now. Right. We have two urgent care ground up single tenant net lease deals under construction, but we have deals with a major children's hospital in the Midwest for a big piece of space, major practice group in upstate New York for a big piece of space. We're working on a 45,000 square foot ambulatory in Florida. I mean, there has been no shortage of that demand. And I think if anything, you look at something like the pandemic, right? And that also amplifies and accelerates the healthcare systems theory that the hospital is for the people who are really sick and everybody else got to go somewhere else from a cost perspective, right? And that was that was eminently apparent, right, at the height of COVID, wherever you were, where, whenever that height was. Well, when we're talking about what is retail, 
is healthcare retail. I'm going to push the hypo to two additional places. Is multifamily retail when you put it on the pad site next to your retail? And then, of course, I'm going to go into the direction that everybody's talking about is an industrial distribution center retail if you stick it in your center. Melina, how much are we seeing these trends impacting traditional retail locations? Well, I think everything is sort of intermeshed, right? Everything impacts the other. So there's so many dynamics that are changing, and especially, I would say, between retail and industrial. Um, where's the line there? If you're using a store as a pickup location or 50% of the store is being used to fulfill orders, is that retailer, is that industrial? Or is that this, this new third option, which is omnichannel, right? So it's, it's all debatable, but I think when it comes down to it is everything is about serving the customer. And there's a blurring of the lines and of these traditional labels that we've put on these spaces and a redefinition of what real estate and and what this space is for the consumer. So Chris, to, to you, the question of conversion of some portion of your traditional retail center to industrial distribution, uh, how much are you seeing that? How much are you thinking about that? Thinking about it, reading about it in headline news more than I'm seeing it in action in the world. A consumer goes to a property and whether it's a gym, a store, a doctor, they're going in to a facility of some sort to consume something. They pay a dollar amount and they consume something. We're so fixated on the word retail and to some it's become a dirty word. I like the word consumer real estate and a consumer goes to a property to consume something and if they can consume it, then it's all under one bucket. What they're consuming is uh, I think less at issue in the future. Where I think the argument falls down on industrial distribution is traditional retail rents are two, three X, what you're gonna get for industrial distribution. Would you agree with that, Chris? Clearly then that has been historically the case. I think a couple of things. One, how does a landlord reposition their property to be able to accommodate that use will is yet to be seen and can they do that and make it worth the while to do that i think that's the key the second piece of that is you know there's no doubt that industrial demand has gone up and the historic industrial rent prices are changing as you know supply and demand continuum uh changes this is one of those things i think it sounds better on cnbc than it does in reality um You know, without getting too far into it, you know, if you had a hypothetical large power shopping center, 125,000 square foot empty box at one end, and some of the other very viable Fortune 100 other typical power center clients in that center with rights, and along comes who everybody knows for the empty box, do you think that those other retailers are necessarily going to wave to let them in? Because I'm not so sure they are. Yeah, we've been tracking this trend really closely in our our research team and also the capital markets team about retail to industrial conversions. It's been on CNBC a lot, right, as we're talking about here. We have been tracking about 59 of these retail to industrial conversions since 2017. And what's true is exactly what Adam's saying is is none of those cases are um, shopping centers. We have a mix of retail and industrial. So that's that's something that's very difficult for REAs, for zoning, uh, as Adam mentioned. 
Uh, a lot of the malls that have been fully converted to industrial were fully vacant or nearly fully vacant at the time of that repositioning. So I, I think it is really challenging to mix retail and industrial in that sense of having, okay, I've got a big box retail next to a big box distribution center. But I think we're seeing um, almost this flex uh, utilization of spaces. So maybe a, a grocer, for example, is using a larger proportion of its store space for distribution than it was five or 10 years ago. But that's still a fundamentally um, you know, consumer serving usage. So it's again, it's that blurring of the lines, but I think um, using the space as both retail and industrial in a shopping center sense is, is very challenging. So let's stay with you for a second, Melina, because I want to talk capital markets. When do you think you're going to see more retail deals hit the market distressed or otherwise? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, in terms of distress, we've not seen a lot of that in the market, although obviously there's a lot of rumblings of it under the surface and and challenges around loans. So we think that we're going to start to see distress hit the market in, in Q1, Q2 of next year. Um, and at that point, however, you know, there's this question of are, are all of these assets that are, you know, quote unquote, underwater just going to go back to the lenders and lenders going to have or servicers all of these assets take to market? And we think it's not going to be that black and white, um, given the amount of product uh, and, and square footage that may end up in that position. There's more opportunity for these lenders and sponsors or owners to, to work together on these to find the, the solution that services both. It's not necessarily in all the lenders' best interest to take all of these assets back at once. So I think we're going to see an interesting blend of partnerships there. But I'd be curious to, to hear what Chris and Adam think about that. Chris? I think in the investment sales market, somebody has to jump. And so you have the, the two-pronged challenge, right? Sellers don't want a lower price and buyers want a COVID pricing. And so you have this bid-ask issue and then you have the challenge in the debt markets. One person's, you know, on one side is going to cave and I think on the investment sales side, and that will be a catalyst because I think there's a lot of fundamentals at the right properties that are better than headline news makes it seem. And so once that trades, I think, you know, you get the first one to trade, I think you will see a strong climb from there, but someone needs to bite the bullet and someone needs to jump. Adam, you lining up, you getting ready to buy some uh, distressed deals? Oh, could it start tomorrow? Um, I think uh, it's no secret, right? I mean, DLC is is not the new kid on the block anymore. This is the fourth uh, bottoming of a cycle. The first one was when I founded the company in 91, 93, post-Russian debt crisis, 98 to 2000, uh, post-GFC, and now. And in each of those prior times, we doubled or more than doubled the size of DLC's own portfolio coming out of those periods of time, right? We all know that it is potentially a historic buying opportunity. Um, I have a view that these things tend to take longer than, than some people believe. And I think there's some peculiarities at work now, like moratoriums against evictions and foreclosures, not so easy to get a receiver. I think what you'll see first is you'll see a couple of big show-stopping deals at some point that nobody expected that will unlock, uh, and this is going to sound a little counterintuitive, will unlock the CMBS market for well-structured, uh, probably lower leverage transactions 
to get the market cooking again. I did an event yesterday for my friends in Canada, and I used a hockey stick analogy because of hockey, but also because of the growth of e-commerce. And you, what we're seeing this year is a hockey stick growth. Um, I think a lot of people are saying that's going to continue. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. But Melina, what do you think? So I have a lot of thoughts on e-commerce. Uh, happy to share. So we did see a huge jump, right? So it went from about 11% of retail sales in Q1 to just over 16%. Uh, to put that in context, right, e-commerce in retail was growing about 3 to 4% a quarter prior to COVID, and then it jumped 35% in one quarter. So this question about, is that sustainable? And in my view, no, it's not. I don't think it's sustainable for a couple of reasons. One, I think that consumers fundamentally prefer the store. And we saw as stores reopened starting in June, e-commerce sales actually declined. So we're going to see consumers come back to the store, even though e-commerce has been sort of accelerated about three years at this point. But the, the biggest factor that I think is the limiting factor for e-commerce growth is the cost it poses to retailers. Retailers cannot afford to deliver to our doorsteps. It erodes their profit margin. And that's, in my view, the only way that retailers in this day and age can sustain high levels of e-commerce. So what does that mean? It means we're going to have to go back to the store. So let me ask a wrap-up question here. We all know the challenges of retail today. Adam, given your 30-plus years in the business, what do you say first to the retailers that are struggling? And what do you say to the people that are employees, particularly the younger folks that are scared today? One of the things I do, Spencer, is I talk to our entire team every week. I talk to them in large groups. I talk to them in small groups. I talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. I make sure I touch everybody every week. Since the start of the pandemic, the number of people let go at DLC is zero. And the number of net new hires is nine, including two people who started today who graduated from college this past spring and summer. Every single person who had a job offer to join DLC pre-pandemic upon their graduation has a job and is working at DLC today. This is a unique time in our history. You know this, not many people do. I'm a trained economic historian and a demographer. And I have told our team consistently from the very beginning, particularly the millennials and the Gen Zers on our team, that Take careful notes, whether you do it on your phone or in an old fashioned black book like I do or on your laptop. Take a lot of notes, take a lot of pictures. You are living in a historic time. It is a period of acceleration and amplification of some pretty terrible and negative things. But it's also gonna be an acceleration and amplification of some pretty extraordinary opportunities, right? I started DLC on January 3rd, 1991 with no money, no employees and no properties. Um, there is no better time to start a business. There is no better time to recapitalize, rethink, re-innovate, re-energize your business than in the firestorm that we're in today. None whatsoever. It is a historic time. People who are clever, adaptable, innovative, full of grit, right, and work like crazy are going to figure it out. The rules of the road are being radically changed. And you can sit around and you can mope about it. Or you can figure out how to get lean, mean, and go do something about it. Notwithstanding all the challenges we face in America today, and I am not trying to downplay them at all, we face a myriad of extraordinary challenges. Personal opinion, if you want to bet on the American economy, that bet is on innovative entrepreneurs, many of whom right, are going to start businesses and they're going to locate them in this thing called a store. 
Last January, one of the senior most executives at Walmart said to me, the e-commerce war is over. The store won. Pretty bold in January, right? You listen to what Molina just said. Guess what? He was right. And it's only been amplified and accelerated since. Adam just lets us some pretty uh, optimistic <laughs> share I, those words. I, I, I don't know. Should I say anything else? I thought that was a pretty good drop the mic moment. <laughs> <laughs> Melina, you agree with Adam? Chris said this, that was a drop the mic moment. I think that was extremely well said. The, the only thing I can say, and really it's just reinforcing Adam's points, is I, I think this is definitely an acceleration also a chance for a reset. And in my view, I think it's a reset for more sustainable solutions. And I mean sustainability, not just environmentally, although that's important. I mean financially. I mean socially, ethically. I think this is an opportunity for us to really look at how do we build businesses and existences, if you will, in a way that can weather storms. And I think it's a, it's a huge opportunity to think about that. So on behalf of the Weekly Take, I want to thank three of the truly great minds in real estate. Adam Ifshin, the CEO of DLC Management. Thank you, Spencer, for having us. Chris Ressa, both the COO of DLC Management and a terrific podcast host himself. <laughs> thank you. And then, of course, my close friend and colleague, Melina Cordero, the America's head of retail capital markets. Melina, thank you. Thank you, Spencer. For more information, go to CBRE backslash The Weekly Take. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.